I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and you're listening to the Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Mini Cooper. For most of us, driving is one of those unavoidable byproducts of adulthood, something we stop associating with pleasure after too many hours spent hunting for viable parking spots. Mini has had 60 years to tweak their performance-centric models to make even the trials and tribulations of urban commuting enjoyable. With their Mini Countryman model, they combined the same fun, instantly recognizable design that made Mini famous in the first place with a significantly roomier body. It seats five passengers without even trying and leaves plenty of cargo space for whatever you're packing. To learn more about Mini and their diverse range of models, please visit miniusa.com. Hi again. Thanks for joining us. If this is your first time, here's what you can expect. Every Thursday, Goop editors will be sitting down with someone who has shown us a new way of thinking about some aspect of life. I'll be interviewing some guests who have completely changed our culture, like Oprah herself. You'll also hear a lot from my chief content officer, Elise Lunin. I know I'm biased, but I think she's the best interviewer around. Today we're talking to DeRay McKesson. DeRay is a civil rights activist, a leading voice in the Black Lives Matter movement, and a co-founder of Campaign Zero. A lot of you will also know him as the host of Pod Save the People, and he has a new book out called On the Other Side of Freedom, The Case of Hope. His work and voice are so important. We're grateful that DeRay stopped by Goop headquarters when he was in L.A. to talk with our chief content officer, Elise Lunin. I think that one of the beautiful things about the protest is that it's forced people to come outside and like see the world, see what the world can be and see that they can challenge and press and fight and like, and it'll be okay, right? That they can do all those things. And I, I'm really hopeful about that. Before we get to DeRay, Elise is going to intro one of our partners. Here at Goop, it's hard not to drink the clean eating Kool-Aid. And for me, one of the best parts of living in L.A. is that we have farmer's markets year-round, which means fresh produce right in our neighborhood on a regular basis. Wandering the stalls and handpicking local ingredients is a favorite Sunday morning activity. My kids like it too. But all the cage-free eggs and California-grown tomatoes would feel a little wasted if we had toxic cookware at home. So green pans clean, ceramic, nonstick pans are pretty much always on our stove. They're great for everything from cheese omelets to stir-fry dinners, even searing meat or doing a homemade braise. Unlike the traditional nonstick options, green pan skips the harmful fluorinated chemicals and plastics. So if I accidentally overdo the heat, I don't have to worry about toxic fumes filling the kitchen, which is always nice. But probably what my husband and I most like about green pan is the easy cleanup. It's a real nonstick pan, so there's no soaking and no scrubbing, which makes the end of the night a lot more fun. Enjoy 40% off your first green pan by using coupon code GOOP at greenpan.us. At the end of today's conversation, I'll be doing a quick round of Ask Me Anything. If you have a question on your mind, just drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. Okay, let's get to Elise and DeRay. I loved your book. Thank you. Are we starting? Yeah, let's start. Oh! Hello. Hi. Hello. It's great to be gooped. Thanks for being here. It's good to be here. Welcome to Los Angeles. Boom, boom, boom. Boom. So you sort of opened the the book with talking about the difference between faith and hope. Mm -hmm. And you seem to be full of hope. Is that fair? 
Yeah, yeah. I think hope is a belief that our tomorrows can be better than our today's. And like a core belief, when King says that the more arc bends towards justice, that's about faith. It's like belief in things unseen. When we think about um, hope, it's like that the arc bends because people bend it. Mm-hmm. And like I'm obsessed with that. That like when we say the system is broken and people say, oh no, it was designed to be that way. The takeaway from that is that it was designed. Like people mm-hmm. made this up. And because people made it up, we can make something better. I'm like, there. yeah. No, I love that part of the book when you talk about like how buildings can come down and parks can be built over that space, et cetera. And that we're sort of in the middle potentially of re-architecting the future. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like we are? I do. I think that, you know, one of the differences between the right and the left when we think about the work of messaging at the very least is some people think that the right is just better at telling stories or better messaging. And the reality is that, that the work is just different, that like... The right is engaged in messaging around nostalgia and memory and recall that they're not creating anything new. It's like we've already survived people in cages like that. That narrative is set building a wall. We've done that before. That They are just like repackaging language that we survived once before. Mm -hmm. Then we think about our work. We're always engaged in make believe that the best of us are engaged in make believe that like when you're telling people about a woman's right to choose, like you don't know what it's like to live in a world where like every woman has a right to choose. Like that is mm-hmm. make believe. Right. And sometimes story telling stories about a future that you've never seen before is actually just hard. It's just like a harder task. So when I think about this moment, I think that we are able, we are starting to tell stories about a world that we've not seen, but we know is possible in public in ways that we've never done before. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question is like, how do we get people ready to live in that world. And like, I think that that is the next part of the work, but I think that we're close. And do you think that it has been sort of a failure of imagination that people don't believe that things can change or be better? Or do you think that nobody has been putting like really strongly articulating the vision or there's been no role model of it? I think it's two things. One is that like people have fought and fought and like, it just didn't, the outcomes didn't change. Right. Mm -hmm. So like one of our sort of pushes to all the people who are like, vote, if you don't vote, you don't care about the country. It's like, there are a lot of people who voted their entire lives and like the country still turned out not to be great for them, right? Mm-hmm. That like, I think about myself as I voted every election I could. I still got tear gas, pepper spray, dragged out of police department by my ankles. Like voting wasn't the only, that mm-hmm. wasn't like the thing, right? So when we talk about voting, we talk about it as like one tool in a tool kit, but there are a lot of people who are like, if you don't vote, you don't care. And it's like, there are a lot of people who did and like mm-hmm. the outcomes didn't change. So I think that that is some of the malaise that we're mm-hmm. experiencing in the world. I think the second is that, like, one of the consequences, especially for marginalized people and people of color, is that you grow up knowing the constraints so well that, like, part of how you survive is knowing the constraints. You don't have a lot of money. You know how to stretch it. You don't have toys. You know how to go outside and still have joy. That people often talk about being poor but not sad, right? Mm-hmm. When the challenge is, like, you grow up and, like, sometimes all we can see is a constraint. You've been looking at the constraints so long that, like, that is what the world becomes for you. So you can't even, like, imagine a world where, like every kid can eat you can't imagine like you just Mm -hmm. because for survival you've imagined something different you live something different so some of it is how do we like unlearn the constraints is the only way to enter into the world and like start to ask the big questions and when i think about like they rewrote the tax code in the back of scrap paper and paper towels Mm -hmm. like don't tell me that the end of mass incarceration is like a 200 year solution like they literally did that in like days and nobody even read it that's wild yeah no it's totally true And going back to what you were saying about constraint, like there was that moment in the book where you talk, I think your teacher was white and you, and she made a mistake. And it was like, I didn't know white people could make mistakes. Yeah. Which is so interesting. Like growing up as you did in poverty, how pervasive is that? Like how many kids are sort of stuck in this world of 
whiteness and versus blackness. Yeah, I think that, I mean, we think about white supremacy as like a smog, right? So everybody inhales it, whether you want to or Mm -hmm. not, that like you participate in it unwittingly just because of the way the world is set up. So you think about what does it mean that nude is the color of your skin and not mine? Mm -hmm. That is like, that is whiteness, dominant culture working. That band-aids look like your skin and not mine is like, Mm -hmm. so you are proximate to it whether you choose to or not. When I think about um, growing up in Baltimore is that like the world was small in ways that I like didn't understand until I left. I was like, I didn't even, you know, I went to school in Maine and I was like, I didn't even know this existed. I didn't know, like I just mm-hmm. didn't know, you know, now because of the internet, young people's worlds are able to be bigger just because, which is like really dope. But that wasn't the case when I was a kid, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm excited to see that. I think that one of the beautiful things about the protest is that it's forced people to come outside and like see the world, see what the world can be mm-hmm. and see that they can challenge and press mm-hmm. and fight and like, and it'll be okay, right? That they can do all those things. And I, I'm really hopeful about that. Yeah. Do you think that people, like when you think about the arc of justice, when you think about sort of where we are now and Selma and this sort of this long process, right? And we still have so far to go. Mass incarceration, as you mentioned, this dominant whiteness, um, lack of representation for people of color and women. But do you feel people can engage with this in the long run, like that they understand how much progress we've made, even though we have so far to go. Yeah, I think that, I think that there are a lot of people, you know, what's interesting about the political climate we're in now is that there's some people who believe the history of injustice in this country began with the Muslim ban. They're like, wow, country Mm -hmm. got really bad. And you're like, country was bad for a lot of people before this. Right. Um, And when I think about what I worry about with the, with Trump is like, will people still care when the threat is not so overt and in your face every single day? Mm-hmm. Right now, it's like, I mean, he's putting kids in cages. Like, it just is so overt that it's like, if you don't say something, it's sort of bizarre. Uh, but it was bad for a lot of people way before he became president. And like, will people still stand up and will, will people? Um, this issue of progress is that like some of the outcomes have gotten better, mm-hmm. but a lot haven't, you know? And part of our work, when we think about even, you know, people talk about truth and reconciliation, and it's like, the truth has to come before the reconciliation, right? Mm-hmm. There's so much of this is like naming and being like, this is this is bad, you know? Uh, when we think about even things like the wealth gap, it's like we think about how wealth was created in white communities. It's like the government literally gave white people housing loans with like 1% interest. We gave white people education in ways we didn't give to anybody else. Things like the highway administration paved over communities of color to create the suburbs. Like mm-hmm. we have to reckon with that and like, then think about how to correct it. And we think about the difference between equality and equity. The equality is a notion that everybody gets the same thing. Equity is the idea that people get what they need and deserve. And the work of justice is almost always a work of equity. So we're not asking for equal funding for school systems. We're asking for equitable funding, right? Mm-hmm. We know it just costs more to educate kids in poverty and kids with special needs. Like, that's our work. And it's so worth it, obviously. I mean, I do think, like, I... I think I put myself in this group of people who com- was completely woken up by the election. Not that things were perfect by any means under Obama, but that felt like we were slowly making progressive change in this country and that things were on the right foot. And I know you supported Hillary Clinton. I love Hillary. I understand she's flawed. But I feel like Trump, I, and maybe this is a totally fucked up thing to say, but I think we will look back on this time and weirdly be thankful. I think he's like a, like in the shamanic tradition, I think he is a, like a martyr, an unconscious martyr of like bringing it all out because I, I don't think there's any way for most people to not say, holy shit, like we have been asleep 
and this is totally fucked up and we all need to be, you sort of distinguish between allies and um, accomplices. Like we need to aggressively start to engage with this and make amends, you know, or acknowledge privilege, but move beyond that and try and figure out how to create more parity. And I don't think that would have happened if we had Hillary. I think it would have just, I think like being from Montana and watching like the white supremacy, I, we always knew that there were hanging out in the woods, sort of in Northern Montana and in mm-hmm. Idaho, but to have them actually come out, I think has been terrifying. I mean, more terrifying for you, obviously, but like a huge wake up call about how much is, has been totally unaddressed. And I agree with you. I think before it was easy to be like, we're getting better, but we're not getting better fast enough. Certainly. Yeah. My, my push would be that like, what I, what I do think is true and what we agree on is that uh, there's so many people who have found their power and found their gift in this moment Mm -hmm. who like didn't know before they didn't believe right. That, when we think about what it means to empower people, it's like, I can't give you power. What I can do is help you find the power you already have. And yeah. like, I think that has happened. I worry about this idea of him being a martyr or like a gift. Is that like, I, I don't want to like glorify trauma because people have figured out how to survive it. Mm-hmm. Right. That like, there's this whole tradition of like, uh, trauma happens and, and people are like resilient. They find their power and strength in the midst of trauma. But like we should, the goal is still an or without trauma. The, like, totally. the goal should be to like, how do we create spaces where you can find your gift, not in the absence of your, like your life being threatened or like your safety being threatened. You know what I mean? Totally. So I think we'll look back and I, I think that like the, the heroes of this moment are the people who like saw the challenge and said, we can do something. Uh, but we want to like not glorify the trauma in the first place. You know, we think about the difference between accountability and justice, right? That accountability is what happens after the trauma. Mm -hmm. Justice is the fact that there should be no trauma in the first place. And like, we want to like build a space where there's justice, right? Where like a Trump doesn't exist because he just isn't, the spirit isn't just right. Like we're those sort of people where the police aren't killing people, where people aren't locked up in cages, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's like the angle. But don't you think that in some ways I, I a hundred percent agree, but that we needed to understand how bad things could get. Like that's, I think the question is like, who's the we, right? right? So when you think about like all the poor black women whose food, the food stamps were getting cut anyway, mm-hmm. like they knew it was bad, you know, like when you think about the immigrants being deported before it was national news, they knew all right. Right. So like the, I think there's a segment of the world that was like, wow, this got really bad. There are other people who are like, you know, we think about the police, like the police were killing people on 14. They were killing mm-hmm. people on 15. They were like, that was we knew it was bad, right? right. Kids haven't like you. You look at like crime. You look at like education statistics. Was already bad, right? What he is doing is that it is just so overt and so endless. And because he's sort of like a a TV character, it just is like this caricature of the government. And like that sort of new. But I think that in terms of like, could the government do these things to people? It's like yeah. a lot of people who already knew. No, for sure. And I don't. I don't mean to discount that. But I feel like there is a. I want to believe that, like, a vast majority of Americans are way more aware, even when than they were in 2014. You know, I do Ferguson. think that white people are like more organized mm-hmm. at scale than they probably ever been. That like right. it is, and it's sort of like normalized, right? That like you should be at the Senate office. Like it's you, know, you think about we were in the street in 2014. It was a lot of black people, yeah, and like some white allies. Now it's like 
you see like the town halls about healthcare, like you see white people coming out and being like, this just isn't right and isn't fair in an organized way. And like, that is really interesting. And I do think that is like a sea change around Mm -hmm. having people who like might not be directly impacted, but, but like understand that like they have a responsibility Mm -hmm. that that has scaled in a way that is different and important. Totally. And I do think that, and, and obviously it was happening before 2014, but in terms of police violence, what has happened, and I know it's not better, but at least in terms of awareness, you guys have done a tremendous amount of work. And the Mapping Police Violence Initiative, will you just explain what that is and why it came about? Yeah, so we were trying to figure out, like, what's the data? So in this country, if you get killed by a police officer and a newspaper doesn't write about you, then you're not in the data set, which is, like, wild. So the the database you probably know the best is the Washington Post database, mm-hmm. and the, and it's a great database. The only challenge is that they only include on-duty killings that include a gun. So Eric Garner, not in the database. He was killed by officers who were on duty, but he was it was not a gun. He was strangled. Uh, you think about Botham Jean, who was just killed in Texas mm-hmm. when the officer just, like, bombarded into his apartment. She was off-duty, and it was a gun. He's not in the database. And we felt like... This is an incomplete story, right? So we wanted to create one database. We actually created ours before the Washington Post, but we created one database that has all of it. So, like, if an officer goes home and shoots his wife in the head, then, like, that's in the database because, like, that was a police officer. If an officer's, like, you know, in a chase and, like, runs somebody over, we think that that's a problem too, right? So we wanted to create the data. And the second and third things that we did is we created the first public databases of police union contracts and use of force policies in the country. So we learned... Things like in California, there's a lot that says that any investigation of an officer that lasts more than a year can never result in discipline regardless of the outcome. That just doesn't make sense, right? In Cleveland, they destroy police officer disciplinary records every two years. It doesn't make sense. And in my home state of Maryland, the law says that you can file an anonymous complaint against an officer for everything except brutality. It's so fucked up. And you're like, that just is like... Yeah. It doesn't make sense. So we wanted to, one of the reasons why we on a hunch did those projects is we were like, there has to be something deeper about like why no officers held accountable, right? Like it can't just, it can't be in every city, like the prosecutor's like wacky. It can't be in every city that the mayor, and then we looked and we're like, well, the common thread is that like their laws, policies, and practices that almost guarantee no officer will be held accountable. So like you think about uh, one of my last data sets showed that 97% of officers aren't even charged and 99% aren't convicted, right? Mm -hmm. So you're like, okay. Yeah. No, I thought that was fascinating and I feel like completely underreported in general and not understood. And it's interesting. It's like, as a debate, the it feels like it gets so confused with this idea of like police safety and obviously police are heroes and heralded in the in the society and there are a lot of amazing police officers yet there are, are there's this pervasive rot and i thought correct me if i'm wrong but it seemed like san francisco is doing something they're doing things differently in terms of de-escalation so the police, yeah, the use of force policy in San Francisco is a model. But here's the thing about policing. It's like you think about for 2,000 years, we literally were slitting people's wrists, letting their blood drain out. And we were like, most advanced medical technique we got. We're draining their blood. The impurities are going to come out. And you're like, no, you're killing them. You know, so people are like, their blood pressure went down. You're like, uh, yeah, because there's no blood left, right? But it took a long time for people to step back and be like, we probably should figure out if the goal is health. This just isn't it, right? Right. And we think about the police. It's like if the goal is safety, this just isn't like this actually hasn't proven to be. It's just not it. It's like you think about a place like Baltimore. We spend five hundred million dollars on the police department. It's a less than twenty percent clearance rate. 
whole division just got indicted by the FBI and the DOJ just came in and said a pattern and practice of like civil rights violations. So you're like, this is if you even if you think capitalism is the best thing, this is just like a bad return on investment. You know, it's like mm-hmm. not this is like doesn't work. So the question becomes like, how do we start to think about safety beyond policing? So you think about like, do you need a gun to go get a cat out of a tree? Mm-hmm. No, you know, do you need a gun to go get kids who skip school? No, right? Like, how do we start to think about alternatives to like needing somebody with a gun with the incredible power to kill people responding to everything in communities? Right. I absolutely agree, obviously. What I thought was interesting about San Francisco is it seemed like they managed to decrease the amount of crimes perpetrated by police officers or police violence. I don't know how exactly they, I guess they wouldn't describe it as a crime while keeping police officers safer. Like it seemed like it was. Police are already safe. Right. But yes, the use of force policies. So theirs is one of the most restrictive. So when we looked at the policies, we looked at things like if you and I are partners and you go do something wild, like you just start beating up somebody, do I have a duty to intervene or like is it just like a nice to have, right? Right. We think that there should be a duty that if I see you engage in something wrong that I'm going to be held responsible if I don't stop you, right? We look at things like that. Do, can officers shoot in cars? Can they shoot into moving cars? Mm-hmm. Like. You know, you kill somebody going 100 miles an hour and they're behind the wheel, like that car is now like a weapon in a way that is not safe, right? right. Does an officer have to give a verbal command before they point their gun at somebody? Like, does an officer have to go through escalation or can they just like straight kill you? Do they have to do anything before? And San Francisco actually comes out better than almost everybody else. It's just like an aggressive policy in a way that is really productive. Uh, and our data actually shows that there's a relationship between restricted policies and police violence at places with more restricted policies see decreases in uh, in police violence which is incredible yeah like i think they're allowed to fire one shot after trying to de-escalate and any more than one shot is i can't remember exactly what you said it's but- like in places like san francisco too it's like you know every time they shoot they there's like a an analysis right mm-hmm. there's some places where like only if you kill somebody is there like a review and like a da 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 but it's like you shouldn't be shooting your gun that much. You know, like, what are you, who are you shooting at? So every right. time you shoot, there should be like, a, we should be like, what did you shoot for? Like, and there's some places that just do that much better than yeah. other places. Well, it's nice to know that there's a model somewhere in the United States of a, a more functioning police department. Cause I do think, I think you're right. Going back to the beginning of the conversation to, too, that sometimes people need to understand how it could be in order to insist that it be that way. You know? Yeah, yeah. You even think Austin has this really wild clause that says that any suspension, any one, two, or three day suspension is automatically later just recoded as a written reprimand. You're like, what? And what human resources world is that happening? Like, that's just like a what? You would never accept that for your kid's teacher. You know what I mean? Like, where did this start? Like, how was this? How did this become the legacy of policing in America? So good question with the, you know, we spend a lot of time on like police unions and, and policies. Uh, there's some place, Maryland was the first state to have a, a state uh, state police officer's bill of rights. And it came in a time where police felt like they were like under attack by local governments and like they were being dismantled. So the mm-hmm. law was like a protection for them. Uh, we've also seen police unions just be really savvy. You know, they like fight for things that seem really innocuous. And then you look back and you're like, okay, that was a nightmare. So there are places where like, only the police chief can issue discipline, which like in theory sounds like a good thing, but because most police chiefs, it's like 
it's like a political thing. Yeah. It's like they're not gonna there's like nobody else in the entire police department can discipline somebody but the chief. It's like that is that's like saying that the the principal is the only person in the school who can like discipline any kid it's like that's like a wild notion do you know what i mean totally but those things seem really like when they wrote them they're like oh this is you're like no this is bad they're also really interesting there are a lot of places we don't talk about this as much publicly because some people don't get it but there are places that just give the police protections that public citizens like private citizens don't have so you think about like there's some places where before an officer can be asked any question they have to get full access to every note every file, every statement before they can even be interrogated. Right. So they have access to all the evidence yeah, to refute like, the evidence. You're like, well, okay. <laughs> like that is like you and I have watched enough episodes of SVU separately My to know My favorite show. To know that that's not how you know if you kill me right now, they are hauling you down to the police department and asking you questions. They're not going to be like hello, here are all the photos from the crime scene. And like, where were you? like, that doesn't make sense. And there are a lot of places where like that actually happens. So we've been trying to help people see that like, this isn't about whether you like the police or not. This is about like, what does accountability look like for public servants? Right. Which I think any reasonable citizen would expect. I think yeah. so much of this is just people don't know. Yeah, I agree. And they expect like the protesters to show up like yelling every day. And you're like, I don't need to yell about it. It's crazy enough, right? Right. But, like, you destroying if I if I was like you know what I'm just gonna wipe out every teacher's disciplinary record parents would be like you can't do that if that yeah. teacher hit somebody's kid last year that should be you're like but with the police were like well we're just recoding the suspensions and you're like that what twilight zone am I in totally but I don't think that people know I agree you'll be the new ambassador I will I would love to help can you explain the earned deserve paradigm well, you know, it's interesting. I am, uh, this came up because I'm no longer interested in talking about like making moral arguments for why welfare is important, for instance, like social welfare programs. And now when people disagree with me, I just say to them, like, what does a four year old have to do to earn dinner? Mm. Right? Like, mm-hmm. what does a seven year old have to do to like deserve shelter today? Like, I don't know. Right. And you don't know either because like they should just have it. And, like, trying to be clear that it's only with people of color and poor people that we sort of put them in this space where they have to, like, prove their worthiness for, like, even the most basic things. And for whiteness, it's like you automatically deserve it. It's like, of course you have a house. Of course, like, there's dinner and food. Like, that's, like, the idea is that, mm-hmm. like, people are inherently worthy. So when I wrote about the earned desert paradigm, it is, like, teasing that out. We'll come back to Elise's conversation with Duray in a minute. Anytime I meet someone new and mention that I live in L.A., the first thing out of their mouth is, ugh, the traffic. One of the many perks of driving a Mini Cooper is that it's go-kart-like handling, intuitive mini-connected entertainment system, and host of high-tech extras make navigating traffic almost enjoyable, no matter where you live. And when the road clears up, the real fun begins. The super agile handling means that it tackles turns, winding streets, and whatever else driving in the city or country can bring with grace. It's a lot like having a sports car for a fraction of the price. Take their newest model, for example. In addition to being their roomiest car to date, the Mini Countryman has available all four all-wheel drive, a slew of techie extras, and space to seat five passengers, not to mention a ton of cargo space for everything you need to bring with you. Plus, you can opt for the plug-in hybrid version, Mini's first foray into the partially electric space. To learn more about Mini and their diverse range of models, visit MiniUSA.com. The Goop office has a disproportionate number of people who really, really care about dental health. 
Things like flossing are actually a topic of conversation, which for the obvious reasons, I've never found that exciting. But after my old school electric toothbrush zonked out, I landed on one that makes brushing my teeth way less tedious and even actually rewarding. For starters, Quip is a sleek and modern looking toothbrush. Now there's a sentence I never thought I'd say. Quip bristles get the job done, but they're not too hard on the gums. The brush has a 30 second timer that reminds you when to switch sides and ensures that I really do brush my teeth for a full two minutes. What's also nice is that there are no longer messy cords, chargers, or bulky holders taking up real estate in our bathroom at home or in our suitcases when we're traveling. Quips hold their charge for three months, and you can attach them to your mirror if you're tight on counter space. And Quip makes it really easy. They send new brush heads automatically straight to your door every three months. No more worn-out bristles, no more Sunday night trips to the drugstore to restock. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go now to getquip.com goop, you can get your first refill pack for free with any Quip electric toothbrush. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash goop. Getquip.com slash goop to get a free refill pack. Back to Elise and DeRay. Let's talk about whiteness. So can you explain sort of the difference between white supremacy, whiteness, and like how... Yeah, and white people. Yeah, so we think about white supremacy as a notion that, like, white is better, white is normal, whiteness is just, like, more worthy of Mm -hmm. things than other races. Uh, Whiteness is the dominant culture that that just, like, creates. And then white people are people who benefit from that, whether they actively participate in it or not, they benefit. So, like, you benefit from living in a world where, like, band-aids just look like you and Mm -hmm. you just looks like you and like the baby dolls all look like like you benefit you didn't didn't work for that but like you benefit from those things yeah and i've had every opportunity and so when we think about like what's important in this moment is that like for white people to both understand their privilege which is like the basic recognition that you benefit from things that you didn't personally work for Mm -hmm. but that is not the aha moment that is like a good moment that's like the first sort of thing but by the time you get there, you're like late to the party because like people of color, we've known that the whole time, right? Like, so thank you for getting there. <laughs> the 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 like aha moment is when you like real when you step back and say like, oh, there's something at the structural level that even allows that to happen, right? right. That the way we redistributed wealth allowed that to happen. The way that like you know you even think about things like as as uh, seemingly silly as film. Do you know why film was changed to capture black skin? Do you know this? No. Because furniture makers got really upset that the first film created couldn't capture mahogany, like wood. So film was redone, like all of film was redone to capture like furniture and black people just benefited from it. And you're like, well, that is wild. That is wild. So you, you look at like just how deeply embedded race is into so many things. And when white people have that moment of recognition about like there's a structure that created this stuff, then it's like, okay, we're on and popping. Mm-hmm. Because then you can start to use your privilege to like disrupt this structure. You can go to the city council meetings when like none of your kids are even like in the school or whatever and say like, oh, this should just be equitable funding, right? Like that is what it means to show up and force the system to distribute resources differently or to just like be better. How do white people stop being allies and start being accomplices? Like, where can, where is it extremely helpful for, like, where can we be the most supportive? 
Yes, remember, both are invitations, not self-appointments. So you don't Mm -hmm. get to just, like, walk in and be like, hey, I'm there live today. Like, I'm just going to do whatever I want. It's like, no, no, you should ask people what they want or, like, identify need. Um, But the short version is, like, allies love you from a distance. Accomplices love you up close. So allies are like, hope you get free. Call me. Accomplices are like, (laughs) hope you get free. Let me know what I can do. Right. Right. So when I think about um, some examples in protests, it's like there were people who, like, supported us from a distance who were like, hope that works out for you. Then there were people who were like, let me know. Right. Like, do you want us to like there were nights when white people would just stand in front of all the people of color because like we knew the police just weren't going to do anything to them. We knew it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that was like putting your putting like walking into the risk with us. You know, like, what does it mean for you to like go to city council meetings about equitable funding and you don't even have kids, you know, but you're going because it's just like the right thing to do. Yeah. And you know that when you say it as like a white person showing up in a space that it just like means something different. Like, you know, I tell people all the time is that if you don't. Don't come to the protest. If the governor is like your cousin, go to his house and like be mad at his house. You know what I mean? Like use whatever privilege you have to like make sure that people like don't get to escape these issues and that people are really pressed on the solutions. Totally. And I think it's interesting, like in terms of waiting for an invitation, because I think it's intimidating for like so many people sort of are like, what, what do I do? What's not offensive? Like what's helpful? What's not my place? So I think laying it out, like ask for an invitation, ask what you can do. I think that's helpful. Yeah. Because you know, what's funny about white people is that white people are often like just not used to not being heard and listened to. Right. So what you find is that well-meaning people walk into spaces and they are just like, I'm going to start doing stuff. And you're like, Whoa, 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 slow down. Right. Like, you actually are like shifting the entire power dynamic because like you are walking into rooms of people who like are trying to figure out what to do, but you just are so used to having, you're used to being centered yeah. that like you are given direction and people are like, what is going on? And like that, that is not a productive dynamic. Totally. But I think the more sort of demarcation or direction so that people feel like they're not misstepping you know, yeah, yeah, because I, I think it gets I do think it gets intimidating where you're like, I don't want to be offensive and I don't want to be somewhere if I'm not supposed to be there. I just want to help. So anything else that you think people can do? I think that like it's important to you that people like just learn the issues. Well, is that there are a lot of people who are like, what can I do? And it's like, what do you want to do? And they're like, in mass incarceration. I'm like, what about mass incarceration? They're like, end it. And I'm like, well, what part of it? You know, and yeah. they're like, it's like you actually just follow your curiosity that there are a lot of people who like just haven't developed a curiosity around the issues that they say they really care about, you know? So, like, if you think that we arrest too many people, then, like, let's work on arrest. If you think that, like, the conditions in jail should be better, let's work on that. If you mm-hmm. think that, like, the release should be better, like, whatever your thing is, we can do that. But, like, you got to, have a, you gotta like, know something, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. uh, that has to be a part of it. And so I think that's it. And the second is that, like, people don't realize that all this stuff starts off really small. That, like, the first thing I ever did in Ferguson was make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. That was, like, what I did. You never saw it. It was real. Did a lot of it. I'm a very good peanut butter and jelly sandwich maker. And, like, that was what I did, you know? And, like, people don't see that the best stuff is, like, you sitting in your living room with two of your neighbors being like, I think that the way the bus pattern is in our neighborhood doesn't make sense. We should change. Like, that's how it always starts. And mm-hmm. people need to be, like, comfortable with that. That it doesn't – it never starts big. It always starts with, like, a couple people in a place being like, I think we can do something. Yeah. And I think that, too, starts to build the appropriate momentum instead of people starting – in a grand way and then becoming immediately disenchanted or disincentivized. Like the people who I've in different areas who I've seen be incredibly successful 
at their issue. Like one of my very good friends is behind the pla- like one of the people behind the plastic straw initiative. Totally different issue, but she's so specific and dogged about like funding anything that's plastic straw based and getting the word out and just like hammering it again. And it's theoretically tedious, but like it's happened. And I it's know her there, issue. You know, yeah, it's like it's she like found a thing. She was curious about it. She learned a lot. And like, it's like the confluence of all of those people who like are the straw people, you know, it's right. like, get your thing, find your thing and fight like hell, you know? Yeah. But it's a, and it's an amazing model of like, if we all, I think you're right. If you all pick one specific part of one specific issue, um, and get dogged about it, that's, it's better than like kids playing soccer where it's like everyone's on the same ball in a way. And I think people just get, they get frustrated when they don't get the ball, you know, or like feel like there's a measurable, but you're right. It's like serve Gatorade on the sideline. Do Give the thing. coach a massage. Do, do you, whatever. Like, whatever your thing is, like do your thing. Cause Lord knows there's enough, there's like enough going around that like there's work for you to do. You know? Yeah. I also thought in the book too, where you talked about sort of the frustration or the dissonance between people who are like, let's, let's burn it all down versus those who understand that like you have to work within the system and make small improvements and make small improvements with the hope of completely changing the system from inside. I thought that was really interesting. Do you, and I think you were talking about it in the context of having run for office, um, and people being upset that you were joining the political system instead of working to overthrow it. Am I getting that right? Yeah, there's some people who think that the only way you can change it is on the outside. And like, you know, I think that you have to be as organized on the inside as you're on the outside, that we can't just be fighting against the people in power. We got to be those people. That yeah. like, we actually just need people in the room who already believe in justice, who already know who like, are, who we don't have to convince that where our lives are important. Like they already yeah. got that part. Right. I think that this idea of the burning down is seductive. I get it. Uh, I'm mindful that when you burn it down, we don't start from, the Garden of Eden. This isn't like a video game where you just get a reset and like you just start all over. You start from the ashes, like it burned. Yeah. And there's some people who don't benefit in the burn. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of disadvantaged people already who like you burn it all down. They're like even worse. All you like you didn't even think it could get worse, and all of a sudden they're worse. So when I think about our work, it's like remembering that like people made it up so we can make something better. And it's always about like how do we, this is a house built with Legos, and we're trying to like find the best. Lego piece that like we take this one piece down and then like the whole wall falls right mm-hmm. so like we don't think about it as incremental with this idea of like we're taking one tile down at a time because that is we're never going to get done yeah but it is like biggest lever wall falls biggest lever wall falls and then part of our work is like how do we build a better house right uh, but at every step of the way it's like people are still inside you know like people are still here people still live here people still need shelter and I think that that is like one thing where like the ideological purity like it's just not real. Like, we don't live in the abstract. And I think that with Trump, you know, what was interesting about that election is that there were a lot of people organizing in the abstract. They were like, president doesn't matter. Why would I vote for the president? Two sides of the same coin. And it's like, it actually isn't, right? Mm-hmm. When you re- when you step out of the abstract, you realize that these are two very different people. Like, Hillary's imperfect. He is wild. And, like, you are sort of willing to play Russian roulette with people's lives because it's like this is like a fun thought experiment for you now he's like deporting all these people doing all this savage stuff and you're like I can't believe we got here it's like yeah Mm -hmm. he told you forget what we told you he told you he was gonna do it yeah it's been 
wild on every level, as you said, too, but so interesting to watch, if interesting is the right word, but to see what's happening sort of with the public and the public, you know, even with Kavanaugh, right? And then you see how the majority of people in this country feel, and it's really a room full of old white men who are dictating what happens to the rest of us. And Old, too. Like, ancient. Like, old. And like, you think about Kavanaugh, you know, like I know, is that if you ever yelled at people, like he yelled at those senators, I know. you would not be able to come back in the workplace. They would be like, oh, no. No. When he cut off Senator Leahy, I was like, oh, this is, Senator Leahy is old as dust. Senator Leahy isn't, like, yelling at anybody. When he cut him off, I was like, this is whiteness. Like, this is the way, like, only you will be able to survive this as, like, a straight white man. You'll be able to, like, people just count it off as, like, another day in America. If I did that, they'd be, like, angry black man, doesn't know how to control it, really no. passionate. Can't If you did it, it'd be, like, doesn't know her place, you know? No, totally. I mean, I would be decried as insane, and, and emotional. And emotional. Hysterical. His, yes, absolutely. And, um, yeah, you would be crazy and, and dangerous. A, a, right, and a threat. Yeah. And he's just, like, normal. <laughs> like, yeah. No! No. Meanwhile, I don't know any woman who didn't look in his face and see the person who... Oh, he totally did it. Oh, for sure. And the same way that many men like him have... Uh, persecuted women. And if you didn't believe it going into that, you certainly should have believed it at the end, you know? know. But I think the public does believe her. And I don't know. I mean, I'm, I feel hopeful that the election and not that it won't be too late, but that things will start to change. But looking at the election, looking at what's ahead for you, like what are, what are a few things that you want people to do? Yeah, I think we need to, like, continue to build a base for 2020 that, like, I think that one of the interesting things about the podcast that have proliferated in, like, Twitter and stuff like that is that we've sort of nailed giving people information. That is, like, what this space got really good at mm-hmm. really quick. I don't think that we've nailed giving, like, helping people build skills. Yeah. And, like, the skill building is what will win in 2020. It won't just be because all of us can, like, spout the latest thing that happened, you know. So I think that that's – I'm interested in working on projects around that. With the police, you know, we still have a lot – there are a lot of things we don't know. There's a lot of data. There are a lot of things that, like, we're still working on. And the third is, like, we really do have to start to um, think about, like, what we want in in a big way so that the moment we get power back, we can, like, just start doing, right? Mm-hmm. We're not thinking anymore. We did it. We – We've had the battle over healthcare for all, Medicare for all, whatever you want to call it. We figured out like what the best version of it is, and we just agree mm-hmm. that we need to lay the foundation for that work now. So the moment we get in power, we can just do it. I think that what he showed us, what Trump showed us, is just how quick the federal government can work, right? Even yes. if he's grinding it to a halt. It's like, you think about the rapidity with which those kids were moved. It's like, that was quick, you know? Like, he showed us, like... That all you need is like a push and forget all the rules and like you can actually make the apparatus move. And imagine if we use that for good. Yeah. No, I am. I completely agree with you. Like, look how many genies he let out of the bottle. Like, we can do the same thing. Yeah. What is prison? <laughs> <laughs> marijuana convictions? They don't exist anymore. Like, you can yeah. do whatever you want. Oh, God. Enough of the marijuana convictions. What? Who do you want to run? And are you going to run again? I don't know who's going to run. You know, when I think about who's going to win is um, whoever 
beats Trump won't be running against Trump. They'll be running for a vision of America that's bigger than him. Mm-hmm. That if you only run against him, you're only as big as him. And like, we need somebody bigger than that. And what I run again, yeah, yeah, I believe in the inside. You know, I was most recently the chief human capital in the school system in Baltimore because I believe that like we got to be, in, we have to be the people at this at the table, not just the people yelling at the people at the table. We got to yell too because people need to be like, we got to make sure that we are continuing to push people and challenge them as they represent us. But we also have to be the people that represent ourselves. So yeah, I'd run again. I like still live in Baltimore. Love Baltimore. If you're ever in the city, I'll take you for crabs. Oh my because god, crabs are amazing. I like want that. Just made every time I talk about crabs, I'm like, I want crabs. <laughs> um, crabs are kind of you eat everybody. The kind of you eat. Thank you for not giving me the other kind you of. You know, crab. just like yeah, here to here to serve, but not that way. <laughs> Thank you for being here. It's so good to be here. Goop 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 <laughs> goop song. That was free by the way. Thank you. We're going to trademark it. You're welcome. Thanks for listening in on today's conversation. Be sure to check out DeRay's new book, On the Other Side of Freedom. DeRay, you're amazing. Thank you. Okay, now it's time for a question from you guys. Danielle asks, what makes you nervous? Flying makes me nervous. Confrontation makes me nervous. I also don't like when you get served at a dinner party like snails that makes me super nervous because I want to be polite but I can't I can't eat that that's happened to me twice before I just want you to know if you have a question you'd like me to answer here send it over to Goop on Instagram or Facebook that's it for this episode of the Goop podcast If you have a chance, please rate, review, and let us know what you think. To keep up with new episodes, just hit subscribe. And don't forget to tell your friends. For more info, check out goop.com slash the podcast. See you soon.